how's your battle been this week? You know, we've been taking, uh, this is the third week now that we're focusing a little on a topic that may be a bit strange for many, but we're focusing on the wiles or the strategies of the devil. And so, again, how have you been standing? Are you growing in your understanding of the wiles and the schemes and the strategies of the evil one? We've got maybe a couple weeks. Um, next week, uh, we just want to focus on uh, two aspects of the character of God because both of those are um, so uh, directly and intimately connected with temptation. In temptation, if you remember from last week, Satan tries to undermine uh, for us and diminish the holiness of God. And so we want to just spend a few minutes um, talking about the holiness of God. And in accusation, Satan tries to make the love and acceptance of God so high that we'll never reach it. And so we want to talk a little bit about the love and acceptance of God. And then the final week, um, I'm already working in my head that what I want to uh, work around a little bit is um, if God is all-powerful and he created Satan, why doesn't he just snuff him out? And yet the Bible does tell us he will soon crush Satan under our feet. But there's an interim period. Why? And so I want to delve into maybe a few of the biblical helps on why there is a Satan and how God uses Satan in the world in which we live. If your uh, neighbor or schoolmate um, or spouse were to ask you today when you got home, so what did you do in church today? What did you talk about? Some of you might say, well, we got there and there was coffee and cake and the Nanaimo bars and the connections room. Some of you might say, well, yeah, we had this choir, this group of people in white, and they sang, and it was pretty awesome, this Come to Jesus. We had a guy talk about some nominations committee, and um, a guy read the scripture, and, and then some guy stood up there and talked about the... <laughs> the devil is not something that is well accepted in a, the culture in which we live. And I think one of the first strategies of the devil or one of the most dominant strategies of Satan in the world in which we live is to hide his reality from us. And he hides behind naturalism and he hides behind science. And the trouble when we're dealing with Satan and the devil is that these issues don't settle into flesh and blood. As Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We feel comfortable with flesh and blood. And there is some of our battle that comes to us through flesh and blood in the sense that it's people that aggravate, people that bring temptation, people that bring accusation. But we don't only wrestle with flesh and blood, as Paul says. We wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. There's a dimension of evil in this world that is beyond flesh and blood. But many in this world today increasingly argue that everything has to have a natural cause or everything has to be explained scientifically. Naturalism is the prevalent worldview in our universities, in our schools, and even in our media. It's a worldview that tells us that everything can be explained through natural causes and laws, that everything can be understood through science. And so what it does is it pushes God to the fringes of our lives. It pushes God into the personal world of individuals and takes him out of the discourse of the world. And what our world argues today is, well, everything has a scientific explanation. There is a natural cause behind everything. 
And so crime and violence and greed and racism and rape and war and cruelty, even the bombing in the Philistine, Philistines, in the Philippines, has to have a natural cause. It has to have a scientific explanation. And so what we would say, well, it's really because of bad psychological factors. Maybe somebody wasn't raised right, or maybe they weren't educated in the right schools or under the right, right methods, or maybe there's sociological factors at work. The systems through which they grew up failed them. There has to be a natural cause, we say, behind all these things that we used to describe as evil. What we can't figure out and what we can't fix, though, we look for answers through naturalism and through science. And so since our society at large doesn't believe in the devil anymore, or certainly as we did even 50 or 100 years ago, we have diseases and dysfunctions to blame for the evil that we do. That's the Western mindset, but it's falling short. Tim Keller drew my attention through uh, one of his lectures to a book by called The Death of Satan, how Americans have lost their sense of ev evil by a fellow named Andrew Delbanco. He's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but he, his very first sentence in that book is a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for dealing with it. It's a profound statement. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil. We see what we think is evil all around us, but we don't have the intellectual resources to deal with it, to understand it, to explain it. And a little bit later, he writes, the repertoire of evil has never been richer, yet never have our responses to it been so weak. And then he goes on and he says, we have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil of transcendent evil, of uh, we don't believe in that any longer. We don't even like to use the word evil, and the reason we don't like it, it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms, we talk about dysfunction, about pathology, we don't use moral terminology. But the author goes on and he says, as the 20th century has gone on, it's gotten harder and harder to say that Holocaust and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psycho psychology or social adjustment, sociological adjustment. He illustrates part of what he's trying to get at, this point of we have no longer any way to talk about evil by referencing the movie Silence of the Lambs. I've not seen the movie, but I've read many uh, reviews of the movie and editorial comments about it. But there's one particular scene in the movie where Hannibal Lecter, who is a serial killer, is behind bars in a cage, and the officer is sort of talking out loud as she's processing um, what the, the, this individual that's behind these bars. And Officer Starling says out loud, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him so that he is so cruel? And of course, Hannibal Lecter is listening in the background and all of a sudden this voice comes from the cage. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil?
Am I evil, Officer Starling? And Debanco's response to that is that modern people can no longer answer that question. We cannot today, in the West, he says, account for the depth and the pervasiveness of evil. But the Bible does. The Bible has a very clear explanation of evil and its consequences in the world as it talks about the devil and his angels who were once God's good creation and they rebelled and they turned against God and they were cast out of heaven for their sin. The Bible talks about humankind who once was good and it we rebelled and turned against God and rejected God and now evil dwells in our hearts. And so Christianity would say psychological and sociological factors can aggravate and they can accentuate the shape of and the innate weaknesses within us, but those don't create it. And that the stuff that's in our hearts that is aggravated by the devil is what makes the world what it is. The explanation for evil we find is in the Bible. And that's what we've been looking at is the work of the evil one. Kath and I went last night to the International Guitar Night it's become one of our favorite uh, January things to do down at the Port Theater. And last evening, there was a young guitarist from um, Germany, Luca, an incredible guitarist. And then there was a young man, 22 years old from France, who played just an incredible electric guitar. And then there was a fellow from Spain, a flamenca guitarist. And I didn't think fingers could do that kind of stuff. And then there was a fellow from Turkey, who played on a guitar from Turkey which doesn't have any frets in it. And one of the reasons it doesn't have any frets is because they have nine microtones between each key. And frets get in the way of those microtones. And so he demonstrated the nine microtones and it was absolutely stunning to see the slight variations in tones as you move from one key to the next key. But I was thinking about my sermon as I was listening to these guys, and I thought, how simplistic a world it would be if all we had in our view was the three chords that uh, most guitar players start out playing in rock bands nowadays, and that that was our view of guitar, guitar playing. And we thought, whoa, how smart are we? But actually, how simplistic would our view be of guitar playing if we didn't account for a Spaniard or a German or a Frenchman or a turkey man. <laughs> I'm not sure what you say. Uh, a Turkish man. That's probably the best way to put it. In other words, our, our worldview is broadened by the scope of diversity that we find in the world of guitars. Is the same way our world is broadened when we add the scriptural worldview on top of the worldviews that people wrestle with. And I think about how narrow we can be sometimes as a Western culture. As we think, well, look at us. We, we don't believe in that devil stuff any longer. We've got naturalism and we've got science and we can explain everything. And I think, so what about the people that live in Latin America? What about the people who live in Africa? What about the people who live in many parts of Asia who absolutely believe and are convinced of an invisible spiritual world? Are we better than them? And so I think to ourselves, no, it's we in the West who have to expand our thinking on some of these things and become broader in them. And finally, I do believe that the Bible is right, as I said a couple of weeks ago. I believe it. 
And you will not understand the world or your own heart unless you read the scriptures and allow them to expose the truth about you and the world in which we live. And so that's one of the temptations of the evil one. is to tell us he doesn't exist, or at least he's on the periphery of life. I'm a little bit all over the map, but it'll make sense. One of the ways that we deal with the temptations and accusations of the evil one is through self-talk. And we've spent a lot of time a number of years ago talking about self-talk. I just want to remind us of that. In fact, there's a scripture that Lori read a little bit earlier that I'm going to come back and reference uh, because it reminds us of self-talk. But when Satan wishes to tempt us, he knocks on the door of our will. And when Satan wishes to accuse us, he pays a call on our conscience. And much of the work that Satan does in the lives of believers is through stimulating our self-talk the conversations that we have with ourselves. And every one of you, if you are honest with yourself, you talk to yourself all day long. There's a constant conversation that you are holding within your head to things that come your way, through things that you read, through things that you hear. If you were to pick up um, um, Thomas Brooks and his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, what you'll find is that he is constantly urging the believer to argue with his soul. To, to, to deal with the wiles and the schemes of Satan as an argument that one has within their soul. Uh, Lori read from uh, Lamentations, and do, did you catch what she said? She said, as uh, she read, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. We talk to ourselves, and we tell ourselves when we're going through tough times and we doubt his mercy and his faithfulness, the Lord is my portion. And we talk to ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones years ago said, the main matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul. He's talking about self-talk there again, about applying the truth of God, the righteousness of God, the word of God, and applying it in our self-talk as we combat the temptations and the accusations of the evil one. One of my favorite Old Testament writers, Dale, Rife, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, wrote in uh, one of his commentaries uh, about how we need to propagandize our souls. We know what propaganda is, don't we? We see propaganda every time there's an election. Uh, it's, it, it's just information that comes our way. And so Dale Ralph Davis says we need to propagandize our souls with truth. He says, all of us propagandize our souls. In other words, we're always talking to ourselves. That is, we, no, there it is. that is, we constantly talk to ourselves. How crucial it is that we feed ourselves true propaganda. There it is again, the sanctification of self-talk. Speaking truth about ourselves, truth about the word of God, truth about the character of God to ourselves when the devil comes along to stimulate us through temptation and through accusation. There's a bumper sticker that read, you don't have to believe everything you think. I think that is an important reminder for us. You don't have to believe everything that you think. And so we've been talking about how the various ways in which the devil, who is a liar and a slanderer, 
stimulates our self-talk. Last week I mentioned, I think, six or seven temptations and four accusations. I want to do that again today to list a few more temptations and accusations of the devil to help you learn to identify them in your own life and to understand the way that he tempts and accuses you. And this is just by way of illustration. Some of you might say, oh, I understand that one. Others might say, that's not happening to me yet. <laughs> yet is the operative word. So again, remember, in temptation, the devil promotes a low view of God's holiness and sin to us. So we think that sin is not a big deal. So one of the ways that Satan stimulates our thinking is to get us to think that repentance is easy. So that you say to yourself, oh, it might be a sin, but I'll just repent of my sin and then it will be okay. But consider, for instance, the life of David, who after he sinned with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed, for numerous months never repented. And in fact, it was only God's gift to David in sending him Nathan that finally Nathan opened up his heart to see where he had sinned. It was God's grace and gift to David that he was able to come to repentance. Because you think of Esau, and you can find this in one of Paul's epistles. It's just slipped my head. I think it's in Timothy, where it says that Esau sought repentance, but he could not find it. See, repentance is a gift of God. Repentance is a sovereign work of God in the life of a believer. Repentance is a flower that grows not in nature's garden. In other words, it's exotic to us. The devil comes along, and as you're facing a temptation, he'll say, go ahead, repentance is easy. And then if you fall in the temptation and sin, he'll say, do you know how hard it is to repent? So one of his ways is by getting us to think that repentance is easy. Another temptation of the evil one in our hearts and lives is to cause us to magnify the sins of other people in comparison with our own sinful ways. And so that we say to ourselves, much like the publican said as he was praying, I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. Have you ever said that to yourself? I'm not as bad as that person. I don't cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. He whispers, you may not, or you may be bad, but compared to so-and-so, you're really a saint. By encouraging the Christian to entertain a lie that one sin is less serious than another and that it's but a small sin. In this way, not only do we sin, but the small sin then makes way for bigger sins in our life. So the self-talk goes something like this. Really, it's just a little sin. There's no danger to my soul. Come on, go ahead. You're, you're not to worry about it. It's really not that bad, big a deal. It's not like you're doing X. But isn't this the way that we find ourselves falling headlong into more and more serious sin? It happens on the fringes with drugs, with sexual sin, with lying. As one old, old writer, and I'll explain his illustration, he says... Small, small sins are as the priming of a poster pillar. We know what priming is, right? We prime walls so that they better accept paint. And so he's talking about priming 
posts or pillars in a home. He says, small sins are as priming of a post or pillar that prepare it better to receive those colors that are laid upon it. A small sin prepares the way for a bigger sin. Small sins leech away our fear of God and our hatred of sin. In other words, they, they weaken, they loosen our view of the holiness of God, of the ugliness of sin. And as we fight a, a temptation and give into a sin and that becomes reduced, then it becomes easier to sin in a bigger way and in a greater way the next time. He disguises himself as an angel of light and comes to us as a friend. The Bible tells us that Satan is an angel of light. We find him coming that way through many people who profess to be Christians in the church or to profess to have found some new truth or some new way that is not to this point been heard of or is a huge diversion from what we used to know. And so the self-talk goes like this. I've never heard it put quite that way before. Why is everybody lighting their hair on fire? And so we think of a book like Love Wins. Or we think of a book like The Shack. We think of other Christian heresies that have made their way into the church, disguised as a friend, and have caused incredible damage and hurt to many. Often, Satan lies lead people to conclude that God is actually contoning questionable behavior. The book of Jude talks about those who come in, we need to contend earnestly for the faith against those who pervert the gospel, who turn the gospel of grace into licentiousness, who turn the gospel into a reason to sin. We need to be careful about those who come with a different gospel, as Paul talks about in Galatians. We need to be careful about those who throw all kinds of legalistic barriers up against us to which Paul says they have no value against stopping the indulgences of the flesh. How we need to study the scriptures, our hearts, Satan's wills, that we may not bid this enemy welcome and all the while think it is Christ who is our guest by causing us to minimize the impact of our friendships. Again, we know the self-talk here, don't we? Well, they're really a good person. And, you know, I'm going to influence them. They're not going to influence me. And, you know, they're going to become a follower of Christ because I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to witness to them. I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life. Accusations. Accusations, uh, remember, again, is where the Satan puts before us, stimulates our thinking so that we think we are out of reach of God's love and acceptance for us. He stimulates the heart or the talk that goes in our heart. So we talk to ourselves and we say, really, look at how big that sin is. Look at how you did this while you were professing to be a Christian. God will never have you back. Your Christian family will never have you back. You've disgraced the gospel. Do you really think that there's forgiveness for you? And his aim is to discredit, discredit not the sin, but the sinner. He moves us to despair of our salvation rather than mourn over our sin. And he delivers the accusations to us as, they are, as though they are from God himself. So what are some of the accusations that we can add on to last week's? Well, he causes us to confuse faith with the assurance of faith. 
I think this is such a critical one. So you say to yourself, well, I don't feel the assurance of God's love or that I've been forgiven of my sin. Therefore, I must not have faith. I must not be saved. You know, it's true. I don't believe faith, true saving faith, can be lost. But I do believe that assurance can be lost. Therefore, assurance is not faith. And in fact, there can be true faith when there is not much assurance in our soul. But Satan causes us to confuse the two. A second one he does is suggest to the Christian that because the feelings and the experiences that we first had when we were a young Christian, because they've long since evaporated, that our faith was really just a passing fad or a passing experience, and that the state of our faith is really quite tenuous. It's kind of like the first number of months or years of marriage can be like a honeymoon. We talk about the honeymoon. They're wonderful, and they're just, they're, and then all of a sudden life sets in. And you can't judge the strength of a marriage by the lack of a honeymoon. I don't know if that's a great illustration. <laughs> but I think you know what I'm saying. Because Satan comes along and he says to us, listen. He says, those earlier days when you first were warned by Christ and you first had the joy of the Lord and you first experienced freedom from sin and the forgiveness of sin and all of that. He says, where is that experience now? I don't see you that joyful any longer. I don't see you any free, uh, living in freedom. And so that really must have just been a passing camp fad or a tent meeting thing. He accuses us of not being sorry enough for sin. So the self-talk goes something like this. I haven't torn my clothes. I haven't thrown ashes on my head. I really haven't even cried a lot about this. And where's the humility and the brokenness? And after all, look at Manasseh and Hezekiah. Look at the Ninevites and Peter. You're not sorry enough. Look at what you've done. Look at how long you've done it. Look at what your sin did to Christ. Look at how you're grieving the Holy Spirit. And you think a little sadness and a few tears is enough? No, you've got to soak in your sorrow as you have soaked in your sin. Such a lie. Do you know the truth is that you and I could never sorrow enough even for one sin? Because that sin has been committed against an infinite, holy God. We could never sorrow enough even for a single sin. The truth of the matter is the Bible tells us that God looks at the heart. He looks at the sorrow in one's heart. And so that when Peter is preaching to the, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem about the death and resurrection of Jesus and how it was they who had killed Jesus, it says they were torn in their hearts. There was true repentance in them. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And he doesn't say, go and be sorrowful and go and cry and go and mourn. He says, believe and you will be saved. Or you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, around verse 10, and there Paul talks about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And we understand that there is a difference between that. And so it's not the 
amount of our sorrow for sin that counts before God. It's our heart that is broken and contrite that counts before God. I was thinking of this, and I don't know if it helpful. It, it sort of helped settle it in my head a little bit, but you're, you've got a family heirloom that's been passed down for five or six or seven generations in your home, and it's a priceless heirloom, and it's carefully displayed in a room in your home. And your children are off to playing in your home, playing hide-and-seek and all those kinds of things, and they understand the rules, and, you know, they know that this room is sort of off-limits because that's uh, a study or that's where, you know, things of value are, or we've certainly got this precious heirloom that's hidden there. And so one day the kids are caught up in their hide-and-seek, and one of them makes their way into the office, and as they're finding a hiding spot, they knock this precious priceless heirloom off its stand and it shatters irretrievably in thousands of pieces on the ground. Could any amount of sorrow in your child bring back that heirloom? Could any amount of sorrow in them find another one, fix the old one? No, but what you would look in your child is for their crushed hearts. And their sorrow as they say, I didn't mean to. I'm so sorry that I've broken it. And what will you do? You will forgive them. You might think, well, that's a pretty expensive. But you'll forgive them, won't you? And you'll say, it's over. It's done. The strength of your sorrow is not what carries you to heaven. Rather, it's true repentance. Finally, as I've been trying to do is outline for us some of the ways in which we stand. Last week it was the gospel. I just want you to understand that the gospel is the first and foremost defense that we have against the temptations and the accusations of the evil ones. Know the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself when he stimulates those temptations and accusations in your head. But here are a few more. Ask God for counsel. Might be a great way to start the day. It might be a, a, a way that as you're facing temptation, you say, God, you've got to help me. Remember, remember, there is a throne in heaven. And then that throne is occupied. We've likened it to the control tower of the universe, so to speak. And God guides and directs all the affairs of all his creation here on earth and in heaven, including Satan and the fallen demons that have followed after him. And at any time, if God so chose, he could reveal to you a scheme or a tactic or a while of the adversary and say, well, this is where that is leading. This is what is going on in your life. Understand that God sets the boundaries on Satan. Understand that God has limited the power of Satan. Understand that we can pray to God and say, God, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Understand that Everything that takes place in heaven and hell and in between passes through Christ's hand because he took the scroll. Remember the scroll from Revelation chapter 5. The Son knows everything that the Father knows and is ready to help us in this life. So when you face temptations and you hear those accusations, run to God for counsel. Secondly, know your heart. Know your heart. Examine it. Even though it may be hard to listen to the 
Bible's description of our hearts, I think we need to remind ourselves of our hearts. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Do you know that about your own heart? Jesus, in another place, says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. So be intimately acquainted with your own heart. Know its anxieties, know its fears, know its worries, know its loves, know its weaknesses. For the more honest we are and the more intimately acquainted with our hearts, the more we will be prepared to deal with the wiles and the strategies and the schemes of the evil one. And so we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart and test me and see if there be any anxious way or wicked way in me. Thirdly, read God's word attentively. The reason I say read God's word attentively is because there, are, there is no temptation that you will ever face that there is not a way through it that the Bible describes for you. There might be an illustration or example of somebody else who has faced that temptation or that accusation and has stood or fallen and the path through that, the danger that came to them. It's all illustrated in the Word of God. So read your Bible attentively, Old Testament and New Testament. Read the stories of the saints that have gone before us in their lives and, and understand what they faced and they went through. You can read how Satan foiled them, how they recovered lost ground. You can understand that there's nothing that you will face, as I've said, that is not outlined for you in Scripture. So read it attentively. At the end of Psalm 19, where David is talking about the breadth and the sufficiency of Scripture, remember what he says? He says, by them your servant is warned. It's the word of God that warns us in this life that we live and this path that we walk. I was reading from Proverbs chapter 6 a couple weeks ago as I was thinking about this. And, and um, in Proverbs 6, he, he, Solomon says, uh, My son, keep your father's commandment, which is the word of God, and do not forsake your mother's teaching, which is the word of God. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. There's that self-talk again, that the Word of God will stimulate speech in us and conversation in us to guide us and keep us safe in the path that we walk. Here's an example of the Old Testament. And this one just, is, it just caught me off guard. And I thought, wow, God, help me to understand your Word in a deeper way. This is what one wrote. He says, While the devil may be in hot pursuit of your soul, the very scent of Christ's blood by which you are justified is noxious to him and will stop him in his tracks. And then this, listen to this. See if you recognize where this is from. Run straight into the tower of the gospel covenant and roll this truth straight on the head of Satan as the woman cast the stone on the head of Abimelech. To him that believes on him who justifies sinners, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you, do you remember that Old Testament story of the Abimelech who was coming against this particular town and they went for refuge in the tower and how the woman in the tower rolled out the, the millstone and it crushed Abimelech's head? 
and how this writer uses that as an illustration of how we run to the tower of the gospel of God for security. And from that tower, we throw promises of God on the head of Satan to silence him. What an incredible way of reading the word of God attentively. And lastly, direct your heart to Christ. I don't know how to say this enough or often enough or to help us grasp this, but Christ is our help. Christ is our victor. Christ is our warrior king. Be strong in the Lord. In the Lord Christ. Understand that the devil is a defeated foe. Understand that his victory is assured. Understand that Christ has disarmed all the powers and the rulers and the authorities. And he has disarmed them and by his cross. And we understand that their judgment is sure and secure. And we read that at the final day, Christ is going to come back victoriously. And he's going to take Satan and the beast and the false prophet and all those that follow him and throw them into the fiery pit. So be strong in the Lord. Stand in the victory of Christ and the power of Christ and the promises of Christ. Understand that we are more than conquerors through Christ. Understand that greater is he that is where? In us than he that is in the world. Remember, Satan is the God of this world. We understand that. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And remember that God is our protector and he never sleeps or slumbers. Father, thank you for your word today. Would you keep helping us, Father, on this journey of exploration as we just take some time to understand your words to us so how we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, how we are learn, to learn to resist him, how we are to be wise against his schemes. Father, help us to understand though, the power of your son, the effectiveness of his victory, and the sureness of your plan and control over this world. Help us, I pray, again this week as we stand for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.